excited to be here with you this morning. I'm excited to be here with you every morning this morning. So we'll be in Acts chapter 13. And we'll, uh, we won't read the entire portion of Acts 13. We'll just read a, a selection um, just due to the length of it. And so I'll read for us Acts 13, 36 through 41. Acts 13, 36 through 41. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But where, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should, should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Let's pray. God, I'm so uh, thankful for the opportunity to be here to preach and study the thing that I love with the people I love, God. There's a blessing in my own heart, and we pray, God, we need to hear your word so desperately, God, to help us realign our minds and our hearts and our thinking towards you. That, God, we would have a greater love for Christ and for his mission as we leave out of here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a position where a, a task that was assigned to you was just too monumental? It would take too many people and it would take too many hours to actually complete. But it was given just to you. And you're thinking, there, there's no way that this can get completed just with me. In, in this amount of time. Maybe you've received something from your work and, and you're thinking, no, this would take... A hundred men over you know, thousands of hours to actually complete. I, I had this same kind of feeling with my first diaper change. This is too monumental. This is too monumental. This would take ten men at a hundred hours to change this diaper. That's what you should think. It's crazy. But this is kind of the feeling that we get in Acts 13. So as we know, the Acts 1-8 mission is that they would go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so now we're getting to that section where it's the ends of the earth. So they've been given this task, and you're thinking, whoa, this is huge. This is monumental. This is way too big. And that's where we get at Acts 13, is that we're going to the ends of the earth. And unfortunately, we don't have time to read the entirety of this text, but I'll just kind of suffice to tell you the story. But here in Acts 13 is a pivot point. From Acts chapters 1 through 12, uh, they've been going to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But now, Acts 13, we, we get a change of direction. Not a change of strategy, but just a change of direction. Now they're going to the ends of the earth. So if you want to kind of think of it, it's, it's kind of like we're at a potty break right here. We're not stopping the vacation. We're just saying, hey, look. Hey, look at everything that we've covered, and we got more to go, which is great. It's a great thing. But that's what we get in Acts 13. Is that it's a pivot point looking, hey, we're going to the ends of the earth now. We've done Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now we're going somewhere else. It's a different direction and strategy. So we've seen Peter and Philip and Stephen kind of come up and, and share the gospel in these places, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But now we get Paul and Barnabas. And now they're being commissioned to go to the Gentile world. And so Acts 13 is a snapshot, just a little cameo, just a little picture of what this is going to look like the rest of the chapters in the book of Acts. Just a little snapshot of the church's engagement with the Acts 1-8 commission to reach the ends of the earth. And so the beginning of the chapter begins with the church 
worshiping, fasting, praying together, and then they're sending off missionaries. The Spirit is working through the church to send off missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, to do this Acts 1-8 commission, the ends of the earth. And then the first story after that is they become in contact with a Roman proconsul, that's Paulus, and then his not-so-wise magician friend, uh, Elimus or Bar-Jesus. And Bar-Jesus doesn't like what Paul and Barnabas are com- coming on because they're kind of threatening his territory. So he opposes them. But then what happens? Paul basically tells them off, and then God strickens him with blindness, Elimus with blindness. And he has to have people lead him around. And Paulus, the Roman council, comes to faith in Christ after seeing this. And then Paul and Barnabas, they continue on their journey, and they go into the synagogue, and Paul begins preaching the gospel to them. He narrates the entire story of Israel and connects it to Jesus Christ there. And then the response is that some Jews do like it. Some Jews do come to faith, but then others are hostile, and they, they persecute, and they kick Paul and Barnabas out of town. But then there's some Gentiles who, who enjoy and love this message, and, and they're coming to faith. So as Paul and Barnabas are kicked out of town, they kind of kick off the dust off their feet as Jesus has told them to, saying, look, any decision that these people make, whatever they do, because they're rejecting, we, we don't want to have any part in this with them. So that's where we're at. It's, a, it's an amazing story, but it doesn't, it's not just a story. It's communicating a message to us. Luke is intentionally putting these pieces together in Acts 13 to communicate something to us. And it's intentional. And so what we're going to do is just look at some big ticket items in Acts 13 and see how is the story progressing? How is the Acts 1-8 mission, the fourth piece of this, how is this progressing here in Acts 13? So let's look at this. Point number one is this, that an eye for the ends, the commissioning of missionaries. Look at, look at Acts 13, 1 through 4. So what seems like a passing comment by Luke is actually intentionally described here. It's an intentional description of the church. Basically, he's telling, what is the DNA of the church? What is the DNA of the church of Antioch? Well, it's made up of two things. One, it's their makeup. What are they made up of? And two, it's their activity. And we'll look at those two pieces. First, what is their makeup? Well, Luke lists out a number of different characters and a number of different people that are part of the church leaders. Look at these people. Barnabas, which we know is from Cyprus. Or actually, yeah, Barnabas is a Levite from Cyprus. Simeon is probably African. Lucius is from Cyrene. Menean is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So it seems like he has some political influence, maybe in a political position. Then you have Saul, who's from Tarsus. So these people who make up the church of Antioch, they're from all over the spectrum. That's race. That's political position. That's ethnicity. That's language. They're from all over the the geographical map. They're not just like each other. And that's what the... That's what the church of Antioch is made up of. And that's what the kingdom of God is made up of. The church, the kingdom of God, isn't about putting its citizens in a cloning machine so that they come out looking just like each other, right? No, the church, the kingdom of God, is about people who come from all different spectrums, from all different cultures, from all different backgrounds, from all different vocations. They come here and they're under the same message and mission. And so the church is not intended to house all these people all these people who come from the same job or the race or, or nationality, but is actually the DNA of the church, the makeup of the church is people from all over the world, from all over every vocation, every ethnicity, every race. The makeup of the church should be a reflection of what we're going to see in heaven. 
And what we're going to see in heaven is people from every race, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. And you know what they have in common? It's not color. It's not wealth. It's not geography. What they have in common is that they've all been ransomed by the blood of Christ. That's what they have in common. It's not race, it's not color, it's not ethnicity. It's they've been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb who was slain in their behalf. That's what they have in common. That's what they have in common. And so I don't want, I don't want you and I, I don't even want my own children to be surprised about who they're going to see in the new heavens and new earth. I don't want them to be surprised. I don't want them to get there and say, whoa, I didn't expect to see these kind of people here. I don't want them to be surprised. Because you know what? We're all going to get to the new heavens and new earth if you're a believer in Christ. And you're going to see people who don't look like you. They, they won't look like you. And isn't this an important message for the church today? In a culture that screams, if you don't look like us, get out. Blood and soil. That's what they were chanting in Charlottesville. Blood and soil. If you weren't born here, if you don't own land here, get out. In a culture that screams and says, divide yourselves, that puts up walls of division, the church, we, we have to be so much more clear with this message. That the church invites all people of all races, of all ethnicities, of all nationalities, of all languages to come and repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be, become this church. That's what the gospel message is about. It's about breaking down barriers, saying we don't care about color, we don't care about race, we don't care about language. We care about submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It transcends color. It transcends race. It even transcends political persuasion. What we all have in common is that we've been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. And despite the walls that our culture wants to constantly create to divide itself, we the church come into the picture and we say, look, we welcome all to repent and believe in Jesus Christ despite what you may look like. We have to get this message right. We have to get this right. And this makeup informs and defines the activity of the church. So that's the second thing is that the makeup informs and defines what is going to be the activity of the church. And as you see here, what is the activity? Well, the church who is made up of all different people and all different sizes and all different races, what are they doing? They're sending out missionaries to go and share the gospel with people who are from all different races, nationalities, languages. The church who looks different is now going to minister and witness and proclaim the gospel to people who don't look like them. The makeup informs the activity. And so what I find most interesting here in this, in 13, 1 through 4, is that this commissioning, when the church is commissioning off missionaries, it's a wedding, it's a collaboration between the church and the spirit. This is the spirit is sending them off, but it also says the church is sending them off. Have you ever heard that, that phrase, he's gone rogue? Ever heard that? Oh man, he's gone rogue, he's off the reservation. Well, we use that, we use that line to say, look, he's, he's functioning independently of anybody else. He, he's going under his own terms. He's not listening, he's not under anybody's oversight. They're doing what they want. This is not the case with the missionaries here that the church is sending out. They're not rogue agents. 
they're God called and church sent. That's, that's what Luke is trying to get across is that the church is laying on hands and they're sending them out, but the Spirit is also sending them out. Is that they're God called and church sent. They're being commissioned by the church, but it's because the Spirit is working in them. So the church is coming together to pray, to fast, to worship, to discern. Is this the Lord's will to send out these missionaries, to raise up these leaders? So the Spirit works in the church to send out missionaries. It's a wedding of the Spirit and the church. So commissioning and church planning is not authenticated. It's not affirmed by the subjective, well, you know what? The, the Spirit told me I need to be a missionary, so I don't really care what the church says. I don't really care what they say. That's a rogue agent. And it's also not this whimsical, kind of flippant, careless act by the church. Oh, they're a good kid. They, they worked VBS that one year, and they did a great job. They should be a pastor. Man, if that's what it takes to be a pastor, just work one year of VBS, I mean, I got a lot of years on my belt. So it's not a careless act, nor is it a subjective kind of, I feel I feel this, so I don't really care what the church says. No, it's a wedding. When we send out missionaries, it's a wedding of the church and the spirit, the spirit working through the church to send out missionaries to the world. The church recognizes, discerns, prays, and obeys in the commissioning of them, and the spirit calls, endows, and equips the ministry. It's a wedding. And so what, one thing that we can take and apply from this is, look, church, Crosspoint, this is your job. This is not the LBC's job, this is not Bagber's job, this is not the IMB's job, this is not NAM's job, this is not even solely the pastor's job to send out missionaries. This is the church's job. This is your responsibility to recognize, discern those in part of your body who you feel like God has called and equipped to serve in the ministry. It is your job. We cannot outsource the Great Commission. We cannot outsource this thing. We can't call in another company to come and say, hey, you need to do this because we're not re- this is really not where we're at. This is not the kind of church we are. This is our job. This is our responsibility to send out missionaries, to recognize, discern, who is God calling to the ministry? This is our job. And we cannot neglect it. We cannot be passive about this. We cannot outsource it. If the nations are going to be reached, it's going to have to be through the church second thing is this, a contest for the ends, the story of two missionaries and a magician. This point may sound like a sweet movie title, two missionaries and a magician. And it illustrates the point well. It's, an odd, it's kind of an odd story, but I think there's some intentionality. Why, why did Luke put this odd story right here, this encounter with a magician and a Roman official right behind the commissioning? Why, why did he do that? Well, I think it has two purposes. It's first, it's a cameo. It's like a movie trailer, and then it's a confirmation. So it's a cameo and a confirmation. First, the cameo is, it's a contest that's set up between a magician and these spirit-empowered and church-sent missionaries. The magician is wanting some political influence. He feels like the missionaries are stepping onto his turf. And so there's a contest set up between them. And as is typical in Acts, the missionaries are always constantly being opposed. And so what happens? Well, Paul throws out some well-deserved comments and slights at him. You son of the devil, that's what he calls him. And then he's blinded. And so the one who is intent on opposing the gospel message 
for selfish political gain is now incapacitated and has to have other people lead him. So there's a contest set up here. It's that the magician versus the church-sent, spirit-empowered missionaries. And this is just to be kind of a cameo, a movie trailer of, look, this is what you should expect in the future. It's what you should expect in the future. In the ministry to the ends of the earth, look, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face turmoil. People are going to oppose you with this gospel. But ultimately, in the contest, God will triumph. And it, it just, rem- it, just let me go for a rant for a second. It reminds me of 1 Kings 18, one of my favorite stories. If you have, go home and read this story. 1 Kings 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Anybody remember that story? Prophets of Baal, the, there's a contest set up there. Prophets of Baal, like, hey, our God will act. Baal will act on our behalf. So Elijah's like, okay, whatever, let, let's do it. So they both put up sacrifices on the altar. Y'all remember that story? And the prophets of Baal, they're cutting themselves. They're screaming out loud, tearing their garments, saying, Baal, just, just strike down the, 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 the sacrifice. Please, please. And, you know, Elijah's kind of sitting in the back corner, like, drinking a Coke, like, hey, I think he went on a trip. I mean, this is really what 1 Kings 18, I'm not making this up. I think he went on a trip. Or, or maybe he's asleep. Or maybe he's using the bathroom. I'm serious. I did not write that in the Bible. That, that is in the Bible. That's Elijah joking. Hey, may, maybe he's just taking a nap using the bathroom. It's a joke. So constantly throughout the Bible, we have these contests set up between gospel ministry and and the world and its evils. But ultimately, God wins all of these oppositions. And so th- it's serving as a cameo in that reminding them, look, you're going to face opposition. Look, God is going to come in and intervene. Look, people are going to come to faith in Christ. Because if you think that, look, hey, since you're going to the ends of the earth, it's going to be the easy job. Yeah, I know you just got out of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and and. You know, you've went through some really hard tasks. If you think that this piece, the ends of the earth, was going to be the easy part, you're wrong. You experience opposition in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. You will experience opposition in the ends of the earth as you go and witness to them. But remember that God ultimately triumphs and he will win and people will come to faith in Christ. So it serves as a cameo reminding them this, that God will win. It also serves as a confirmation. So you get this kind of short passage that Luke inserts, and it confirms the commissioning, almost. So the church, as we just talked about, commissions missionaries, and then this odd story comes in, and ultimately, Paulus comes to faith in Christ. It's, it's a stamp of approval, almost, like, look, God works. The gospel works. People come to faith. It works. So it's a stamp of approval, a confirmation of what God is doing. So in this, God is showing signs and wonders to show that he can defeat even somewhat seemingly wise magicians, but also shows that he's powerful enough to convert even the most unlikely of people in Paulus, the Roman official. A Roman official is coming to faith in Christ. That's crazy. It's crazy. Next is that connecting the dots, a message for Jews and Gentiles. Is that, so Paul moves on from this journey after Paul has come to faith in Christ, and he goes to the synagogue in Poseidon, and they ask him, hey, bring us some encouragement. Tell, tell us some encouragement after they just read the law and the prophets. Tell us some encouragement. So what does he do? Well, he steps up to the microphone, and ultimately what he's doing in this sermon, which is Paul's first sermon recorded in Acts, is he's connecting the dots for people. 
is that he's narrating the story of Israel and climaxing it in Jesus Christ. Basically showing, look, this Jesus and this message that we're proclaiming is not in contrast. It's not opposing your history and your heritage and your faith. It's actually in continuity with it. Jesus is in continuity with the Old Testament story. So that's why he narrates it and he climaxes it in Jesus Christ. To show, look, Jesus is not coming here to throw out the Old Testament. He's coming in here to fulfill it. And so let's look at a couple of elements here in Paul's sermon. A couple of interesting things that po- that's been pointed out. First is that there's a, there's a contrast here between God's benevolence and the Jews' culpability or responsibility. Look at 17 through 23. A couple of interesting phrases that are thrown in here. Just follow me on this. So it says, God chose our fathers. God made the people great. He led them out. This is verse 17. All three of those in verse 17. Verse 18, he put up with them. Verse 19, he gave them their land. Verse 20, he gave them judges. Verse 21, God gave them Saul. Verse 22, he raised up David. Verse 23, God has brought Israel's Savior. Look at God's activity. And that's what Paul's wanting to, to tell them. Look at your history. Look at God's activity and in his inter- intervening and in everything that he's given you. Look at what he's done for you. He has been very benevolent, giving you all these things, land and judges and choosing your fathers, and then ultimately a savior for Israel. So he's putting in contrast God's complete benevolence in giving Israel things and giving all these things to lead them to faith. But then on the other side is the Jews' culpability, their responsibility for their sin. Look at this, verse 21. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize. Then look at 28. They found in him no guilt, worthy of death, that being Pilate. And then they had carried out all that was written. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. The culpability and responsibility is laid on the laps of the Jews. You killed your Savior. Everything that God has done for you, he's, he's given you all these things, and then ultimately he gave you a Savior, and you killed him. him. So the next thing that Paul wants to, wants to hit on is, he wants to talk about Jesus, which, you know, it's kind of surprising that Paul wants to talk about Jesus, right? No. It's expected. And what does he emphasize about Jesus? Well, he, he talks about this, this Jesus. He, he's, the, he's the guy who's going to sit on David's throne from 2 Samuel 7. He's the guy who's going to fulfill all the promises that all the prophets spoke about. He's the guy who was crucified that you killed, and he was raised from the dead. And that has, it has witnesses. People saw it. People saw him after he was raised from the dead. So it's verifiable. No man has ever done that. But he, all, he actually points out another piece that is not included in Stephen's or in Peter's, Peter's sermon. It's very interesting. It's the section that I re- read to you in 38 through 39. Is that this Jesus brings forgiveness. This Jesus that was sent to you, that you killed, it's actually by his death and resurrection that he brings forgiveness for you. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So though your fathers have rejected God in all their history, though you reject God by killing his son, 
Despite all those things, this Savior has died and been raised from the grave so that you would be forgiven of everything that you've done wrong. He climaxes this sermon in Jesus Christ. Look, I know you have a list of sins here of everything you and your fathers have done wrong, but this Jesus has come to forgive you of all those things that you've done wrong. It's beautiful. He says, you can try and find forgiveness in keeping your law of Moses. You can try and find some freedom, but you will not find any. It's like trying to fill up a bucket with a hole at the bottom. You will never be able to do it. So he's saying, look, in this Christ that you crucified and has been raised from the dead, you can find everything you need, forgiveness for everything that you've done wrong. The next thing is the altar call and the aftermath. Some of you just perked up by me just saying altar call. But Paul's a good Southern Baptist preacher and preaching a good Southern Baptist sermon, so he's got to have an altar call. Amen? You don't have to amen that. But that's what he kind of does here. Is that he's trying to elicit a response from these people, from his listeners. And he does so by warning them that passivity or rejecting the gospel is a very dangerous affair. Look, look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. So he's basically saying, look, in Habakkuk, that's where he's quoting from in verse 41, he's saying, look, what Habakkuk said about to Israel about, hey, if you don't turn from your sins, you're going to go into exile. The same is going to be true of you if you reject this message right now. If you reject this message, then your fate will be the same as the Israelites. Even worse, it will be eternally damaging for you. And so Paul wants to make very clear, he wants to ensure that his audience, that his hearers are very aware that it's not okay, it's not acceptable, it's not fine to reject the gospel or respectfully decline the gospel that he's presenting to them. And I'll just give you an example of this. My former pastor, Andy Davis, he was, he was talking about how he shares the gospel on airplanes. And so he says he'll, he'll try to start, you know, spark up a conversation with somebody on a plane And then they'll begin talking about the gospel. And by the end of it, you know, he'll say, what do you think about this? What what would you like, how would you like to respond? And he said, you know, some people will say, no, not today. I'm not really interested. And you know what he responds with? Well, I'm going to pray that you not sleep tonight. And some of you are like, how dare he say that? That's exactly what needs to be said. It's not okay for people to reject the gospel. We have to have some gravity about this. It's not okay for people to respectfully decline. If eternity is in the hands, then look, it's not enough for us to say, oh, no big deal. It's okay. Maybe next time. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's eternally damaging. We have to be upfront about this. Now, I'm not saying you need to be a jerk. I'm saying we need to be truthful. That it's not okay for people to reject the gospel or respectfully decline it. You can still love them, but you need to warn them. It's not okay for what you just did. And what is the aftermath of this situation? Well, ultimately, you know, portions of the Jews, they respond positively to the gospel. Some do come to faith. But others are continue to reject. And they persecute Paul and Barnabas kick them out of town, incite riots. And you know what Paul responds? Okay, we've done our due diligence. We've done our duty. Uh, we're going to the Gentiles now. As was prophesied in Isaiah, we're going to the Gentiles. 
And he's not saying that he's never going to preach the gospel to Jews anymore. He's just saying, look, the direction is going to be different. We're not going to preach exclusively to Jews anymore. That we're going to go to the Gentiles. Because look, they're excited about this message that Gentiles can be included in this salvation. They're excited about this. And so he says, we're going we're to go a different direction. And ultimately, Paul lays this out in Romans 11, that the intent of him going to the Gentiles is so that he would make the Jews jealous. And that they would want to believe in this gospel. Romans 11 says that. And so they go a different direction. So the aftermath is people do come to faith in Christ. There's great acceptance, but there's also people who continue to reject. And so we've kind of strolled briskly through Acts 13, and we've seen that this church is a conglomeration of people from all over the the world, from all different vocations, races, nationalities, ethnicities, and that their mission and message is to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's That's their DNA. They're made up of of different people and their their activity is that they're called to reach different people. And so we get pieces of this. We see a Roman proconsul come to faith in Christ. We see Paul preaching to Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. So ultimately, this Acts 1-8 mission is working. Gentiles are coming to faith. It's working by God's grace. So what do we do? What do we do? In light of Acts 13 and everything that's been going on here, what, what do we do with this? Is that I think we learn two things from this passage. Is that one, is that we need to have an eye for the ends. What does our prayers, what does our personal budgets, what does our church budget, what does our teaching our children, what does it say about our concern for bringing the gospel to the globe, to the entire world? What, what do these things say? What do they say about our concern? Because our tendency is to be insular. Our tendency is to be narcissistic and all about ourselves and say, we need to be concerned right here and right now. And I'm not saying we don't need to have local impact. I'm saying we need to have local and global impact in the world. And so how, how are we demonstrating in our own lives that we have a concern for the spiritual state of Louisiana and of, and of Afghanistan? How are we teaching our children that God is concerned about the salvation of the United States and of North Korea? How are we spending our money in such a way that we're saying, we're concerned about the salvation of Baton Rouge and the people group of Socotran, which they have a population of 145,000 people, 4% evangelical believers. I'll let you do the numbers on that. How does spending our money, what does it say about our concern for reaching the globe with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it say? We need to be constantly evaluating ourselves, evaluating our hearts, how we spend our money, how we teach our children. What does it say about our concern for reaching the the globe? Because if our eyes are not to the ends of the earth, then we are not representing God well because, as I said, our God is a global God. And His desire is to see people from all over the world reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just North America, the entire world. And the last thing I think what we learn from this, though it's just a piece, we read it in 13, 38 through 41, is that the danger for us and for the entire world is that we would go looking for the thing that we most need in all the wrong places. I'm going to say that one more time. 
the danger for us and for the world is that we would go looking in all the wrong places for the thing that we need most desperately. It would be like upon receiving a fatal snake bite that we go to a gas station looking for the antidote. You're not going to find it there. Only to find out that the only place that has the antidote is in the hands of a doctor at a hospital. And as we see in 38 through 39 is that what we need most is forgiveness. And the most dangerous thing that we can do and that we, we can do and the world can do is to go searching for forgiveness in all the wrong places. Whether that be substance abuse. Whether that be relationships. Whether that be money. Whether that be your occupation. Whether that be looking good by doing good works. Because what you'll find out is if you go searching for forgiveness in all those places, you will come up empty and wanting because you will not find what you're looking for and what you most desperately need. Because what you most desperately need is forgiveness. And none of those places or those people will give it to you. And as Paul makes clear in his sermon, what you need most can only be found in the Savior, Jesus Christ. That Christ has come, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve, was raised from the dead to hand us and give us the cure that we so desperately need. And that's forgiveness for all that we've done wrong. And so you may sit in here today, maybe as a believer who is harboring some bitterness, or maybe you feel like you can never be forgiven by something that you've done in your past or doing currently. Let me say this, that Jesus offers you forgiveness. And I say the same thing to believe, unbelievers, is that look, is that you need forgiveness in this world more than you need anything. And look, you're going you're gonna to come up empty if you go searching for it in all the wrong places. Because the only place that you will find forgiveness is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't go searching in all the wrong places. Because the most dangerous thing, two, two of the most dangerous things that you can do is go looking in all the wrong places or reject it completely when the antidote is handed to you. So let me warn you. Let me tell you this morning, as we've seen the church sending out missionaries and, and God winning and triumphing over, over those who oppose the gospel and, and Paul proclaiming this gospel of Jesus Christ and people responding, let me call you to this. That look, if you are searching for forgiveness today, this morning, you can find it in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, we so need you. God, what we need most in this world is not more money, more fame, more enjoyments. What we need is righteousness. What we need is forgiveness, God. And we can only find that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I pray if there's any here this morning that need that, that they would find that here in Jesus. That they would respond in faith. That God, if we have found forgiveness in Jesus Christ, if we are believers, if we have repented and trusted in Christ, that God, we would sing and rejoice that we no longer have to live in condemnation, that we can live in triumph and victory because Christ has defeated sin with his life, and that we have been forgiven for all of our wrongs. So God, help us sing because of this truth. We love you and praise you.